Welcome to the Banner of Truth broadcast. This program is brought to you by the Free Reformed Churches of North America. Your host is Pastor Jack Schumann, pastor of the Emmanuel Free Reformed Church of Abbotsford, British Columbia. And now, here is Pastor Jack Schumann. We are continuing our series of sermons today on Paul's letter to the Philippians. The text for the sermon is taken from Philippians chapter 3, the verses 4 through 8. Let us hear the word of God. Paul writes, Though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed, I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ. May the Lord bless the preaching and the reading of his word to our hearts. Dear friends, one of the most important financial statements for any business or organization is something called the balance sheet. The balance sheet presents a company's financial position at the end of a specified date. And the purpose of the balance sheet is to allow the reader to see what a company owns as well as what it owes as of a certain date. What the company owns is called its assets, and what it owes is called its liabilities. Well, our text today is like a balance sheet, only it's not financial, but spiritual. For in this passage, the Apostle Paul outlines both his spiritual assets and his spiritual liabilities. Now, Paul had been warning the Philippians against certain false teachers known as the Judaizers. The Judaizers were Christians who taught that in order to be saved, one not only had to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, one also had to be circumcised and observe all the dietary restrictions of the law of Moses. Now, the apostles strongly condemned such people. In fact, in verse 2 of our text chapter, he calls them dogs, evil workers, and the mutilation. And why does he say that? Because he rightly perceived that they were, however inadvertently, detracting from the sufficiency of Christ. They were saying, again, however inadvertently, that the work of Christ is not enough. To the work of Christ, we must bring something else, something of ourselves, something that we are or do or have, and in this case, circumcision. Now, the apostle, however, denied that flatly. He strongly asserted that we are saved by faith and faith alone, apart from anything in us. And as such, those who taught contrary to this needed to be condemned in the strongest possible terms. Well, over and against the Judaizers, Paul goes on in verse 3 to describe the true Christian, which we considered last week. And he mentions four qualities of the true Christian. He says, first of all, he is one who is circumcised, not outwardly and physically, but in his heart. Secondly, he says he worships God in the Spirit, meaning with his whole heart, directed and empowered by the Holy Spirit of God. 
Thirdly, he says, he rejoices in Christ Jesus. That means he looks to Christ and his active and passive obedience as the only hope and ground of his salvation. And fourthly, the true Christian puts no confidence in the flesh. That means he doesn't trust in anything in himself as the ground for his justification before God. Not his good works, not his religious observances, not his spiritual experiences, nothing, absolutely nothing in self. Well, now in verses 4 to 11, Paul goes on to hold himself up as an example of one who puts no confidence in the flesh. And he does so, first of all, by listing all of the things that he once thought could earn him the favor of God, his so-called assets, which he later discovered were actually liabilities. Following that, he mentions his only true asset, and that was Jesus Christ, which ironically he once thought was his greatest liability. Now with this in mind, and the help of the Lord, let's reflect on these verses under this theme, Paul's spiritual balance sheet. We'll consider, first of all, his many liabilities, and then next week, God willing, we'll consider his one asset. The Apostle Paul knew that the Judaizers put a lot of confidence in the flesh. They believed that their circumcision and their obedience to the law of Moses counted for at least something towards their justification before God. But rather than simply tell them that they were wrong, Paul in our text brings himself down to their level, as it were. He levels the playing field. Lest they accuse him of not understanding or appreciating the value of these things, Paul declares in verse 4, "...though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so." Now, the original Greek is strongly emphatic. It's as though Paul is saying, if salvation depended on something in me, as the Judaizers claim, then I would be the first person saved. Now, why does he say that? What did Paul possess that made him such a prime candidate for salvation? Well, beginning in verse 5 and continuing into verse 6, Paul provides seven different grounds for confidence in the flesh that he could rely upon. If, in fact, salvation was based even partly on the works of the flesh. The first four of these relate to Paul's pedigree or his personal background, and the remaining three relate to his personal accomplishments. Well, what are they? First of all, he says, I was circumcised on the eighth day. Now, the Judaizers, as we've seen, placed a lot of emphasis on circumcision. They even taught that it was necessary for salvation. And so it's not surprising that Paul begins his list with this, with circumcision. Now, circumcision, as you may know, was instituted by God in Genesis 17 as a sign and seal of the covenant of grace. And it communicated that the person who was circumcised belonged to God. He was God's covenant child, and God was his covenant God, just as baptism does today. Now, when God commanded Abraham to circumcise his children, he explicitly stated that they should be circumcised on the eighth day. And Paul here informs his readers that he himself was circumcised on the eighth day exactly as the law of God had prescribed. In fact, Paul draws attention to that fact in his very wording. Literally, the original Greek says, with respect to circumcision, an eighth dayer. That's, that's literally what he says. Secondly, Paul points out that he was of the stock, or we could say the people or the nation of the people of Israel. Now again, the people of Israel were God's chosen people. He loved and favored them above all the other nations on the earth. 
Paul probably mentions this because he knows that some of the Judaizers were Gentiles. And as such, they were not of the stock of the people of Israel. They were proselytes, but not the Apostle Paul. He was of the stock of Israel. He was a pure-blooded Jew. Now you'll notice that Paul does not say, I am a descendant of Abraham. And that's because there were several nations who could claim descent from Abraham. The Arabs were descendants of Abraham through Ishmael. The Edomites were descendants of Abraham through his grandson Esau. But Paul can say without qualification that he was of the stock of Israel. That means he was a descendant of Abraham through Isaac and then Jacob through the chosen covenant line. Jacob's name, of course, was later changed to Israel after he wrestled with the Lord at Peniel. The third thing that Paul mentions here is that he was of the tribe of Benjamin. Now here Paul observes that not only was he of the stock of Israel, he was also of a specific tribe. He was of the tribe of Benjamin. Now next to the tribe of Judah, from which our Lord descended and from which the kings were chosen, the tribe of Benjamin held a very honored position in the nation of Israel. Benjamin was the son of Rachel, who was Jacob's favorite wife. Rachel gave birth to two boys, Joseph and Benjamin, the youngest of which was, and Benjamin, of course, was the youngest of Jacob's sons. And while giving birth to Benjamin, Rachel died. Because he loved Rachel so much, Jacob favored Joseph above all of his other sons. But after Joseph was sold into slavery, Jacob appeared to pour all of his affection on Benjamin. Benjamin became Jacob's new favorite son. Well, years later, as he lay on his deathbed, Jacob pronounced a great blessing on his son Benjamin. He called Benjamin a ravenous wolf, and he predicted that in the morning he shall devour the prey, and at night he shall divide the spoil, implying that Benjamin would become a fierce and mighty power. In fact, when the time came for the people of Israel to take possession of the land of Canaan, Benjamin was, the, was positioned at the very front line of battle. Now, the tribe of Benjamin figured very prominently in the later history of Israel. The first king of Israel, Saul, was chosen from this tribe. Mordecai and Esther, who later saved the people of Israel from extinction at the hands of Haman, were also from the tribe of Benjamin. What is more, the tribe of Benjamin, along with Judah, comprised the southern kingdom of Judah. And when the nation of Israel split during the reign of King Rehoboam, only the tribe of Benjamin stayed loyal to the house of David. The rest of the tribes rebelled. And for that act of loyalty, Benjamin was rewarded with a special measure of God's protection and favor. Now, to be sure, the history of the tribe of Benjamin was not all glorious. In fact, in Judges 19 and 20, we have the sickening account of the men of Gibeah, which was a city in the territory of Benjamin, who wanted to have homosexual relations with a man who was spending the night in the city. And they were terribly punished for this. Nevertheless, the tribe of Benjamin held a very honored place in the history of Israel. Well, such was the pedigree of the Apostle Paul. He was not only of the stock of Israel, but he was more specifically of the tribe of Benjamin. Fourthly, Paul says, he was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. Now, it's not exactly clear what Paul means by that phrase. Most likely, he means he was a Hebrew child of Hebrew parents. 
More broadly, he means he was raised in a family whose roots were in the land of Israel rather than in the diaspora. You may remember that in the first century A.D., there were Jewish populations, Jewish communities, all over the Roman Empire. And these Jewish communities were known as the diaspora, from the Greek word meaning dispersion. Most of the Jews of the diaspora were Hellenized, meaning they had adopted the Greek language and culture. But that was not true for the Apostle Paul. Although Paul grew up in Tarsus in Cilicia and not in the land of Israel proper, his parents were careful to maintain Jewish customs and Jewish traditions. They had not become Hellenized like the others. And when he became of age, the Apostle Paul maintained these traditions himself, refusing to be assimilated by the Greek and Roman culture in which he lived. In fact, in Galatians 1 verse 14, he writes this, I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous for the traditions of my fathers. The point is, Paul was thoroughly Jewish. He spoke Hebrew, he practiced Jewish customs, he went to Jewish schools, he lived in Jewish communities. He was, in every sense of the word, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. Fifthly, Paul says, concerning the law, he was a Pharisee. Now, this is the first of three aspects of Paul's Jewish identity created by his own choices and commitments. The previous three were all, we could say, accidents of birth, and so beyond his control. The very first thing Paul mentions here is that he was a Pharisee. He chose to become a Pharisee. Now, of all the religious Jewish groups in Palestine during this time, the Pharisees were the most strict. They believed that the law of Moses had to be observed to the very letter. They also believed that they had to observe the traditions of the elders, a body of rules and regulations that had been handed down to them by famous rabbis in the past. And because of their strictness, the Pharisees were generally highly regarded among the people. They were seen as models of religious devotion. Well, such was the Apostle Paul. He himself was a Pharisee. In fact, he actually studied in Jerusalem under one of the most famous rabbis of his day, a man by the name of Gamaliel. So when Paul identifies himself as a Pharisee, he's saying, I am one of the spiritual elites. I was a high-ranking member of this sect. No one came close to me when it came to devotion and strictness. Sixthly, Paul says concerning zeal, persecuting the church. By means of that statement, Paul seeks to impress on us that not only was he a Pharisee, he was an extremely zealous Pharisee. Now, there's nothing wrong with being zealous. In fact, zeal for the Lord is highly commended in Scripture. Think, for example, of Phinehas, the son of Aaron, who once took a javelin and went into the tent of a man who was having intercourse with a Moabite woman, and he thrust them both through until they were dead, thereby assuaging the anger of the Lord. And the Lord commended him for this. Well, such was the Apostle Paul. He was zealous for the Lord. Unfortunately, however, Paul was zealous for the wrong thing. Before his conversion to Christ, Paul was zealous for the law of God and the honor of God. 
but he mistakenly thought that the way to demonstrate that zeal was to persecute Christians. He thought that because Christians believed that Jesus was the promised Messiah and worshipped him, it was his responsibility to do everything in his power to stamp them out. And to that end, he stood by approvingly as the Jews stoned Stephen to death. Later on, he sought authorization from the high priest to go to Damascus and to arrest the Christians there and to bring them bound to Jerusalem for trial. He was so zealous about this that he admits in Galatians 1 verse 13 that he persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried even to destroy it. Well, that's zeal. No one could come close to the Apostle Paul when it came to zeal. Seventhly and finally, Paul mentions the fact that concerning the righteousness which is in the law, he was blameless. Now, understand correctly that when Paul says he was blameless, he doesn't mean he was sinless. No Jew believed he was sinless, nor did they believe they could ever become sinless. In fact, in Romans chapter 7, Paul himself says that before his conversion to Christ, he was bothered by his sin. In Romans 7 verse 7, he writes that he had not known sin except through the law. But, he writes, sin, taking opportunity by the commandment, produced in me all manner of evil desire. For apart from the law, sin was dead. I was alive once without the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. So Paul never once claimed to be sinless, neither before or even after his conversion to Christ. So what then does he mean when he says that concerning the righteousness that was in the law, he was blameless? Well, he meant this. He meant that his life lined up, at least outwardly, with the law of God. In other words, he wasn't living in open sin. And anyone who knew him and anyone who observed his life could not accuse him of doing anything wrong. He was, as far as the world was concerned, a blameless man. And so Paul had a lot to boast about. He was circumcised the eighth day. He was of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. And so he concluded that if anyone could have a confidence in the flesh, it was he. But then notice what he says next. A great shift occurs in verses 7 and 8. He writes, But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed, I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. Now as I said in my introduction, Paul here is presenting us with his spiritual balance sheet. And on this balance sheet, he presents us with his gains and his losses. He tells us that what he once counted as gain, the fact that he was circumcised the eighth day and of the stock of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, the Hebrew of the Hebrews, and so on, he now counts all these things as loss. And what he used to count as loss, which was Christ, and all of his benefits, he now counts as gain. In fact, he declares 
that what he once counted as gain is now rubbish to him. The word that Paul uses here refers either to human excrement or to garbage. The authorized version translates this word as dung. The point is, when Paul added up everything that he once counted as gain, he declared that it's all rubbish, it is dung, it is excrement, utterly and totally useless. Now you notice that Paul is not saying that it's of no value at all, socially or educationally or historically, because it is. What he's saying is that it's of no value salvifically. In other words, it counts for nothing towards our salvation. It's garbage. It's good for nothing. It's rubbish. It's done. Well, my friend, what about you today? Is there anything in your life that you think you can boast about? Something that you think can earn you the favor of God? Or that you think makes you more presentable before God? Well, make no mistake, there are plenty of people who do. There are plenty of people who rest, if only partially, on their good works, on their faithful church attendance, on the amount of money that they give for the work of the Lord, on their spiritual experiences, on their membership in the covenant of grace, on the fact that they were born of Christian parents and come from a long line of faithful Christians, on the fact that they attend a faithful Bible-believing and conservative church, on the fact that they're strict in their lifestyle, and so on and on and on it goes. Now they might never say it in so many words, but deep down inside, they think that these things make them better than others. And that in some way, shape, or form, these things are going to make a difference on the day of judgment. That God is somehow going to give them credit for these things. That he's going to look down on them and say, well, here's a man, here's a woman, here's a boy or a girl who has many commendable qualities and has done many commendable things. And it's on this basis that I will allow him to enter into my kingdom. But the Apostle Paul says, no, all of these things are good for nothing. They are rubbish. They are dung. They are excrement to the sight of God. Why? Because they're all defiled by sin. And as such, they can form no part of our righteousness before God. There's only one thing that God will account as righteous when we stand before him on the day of judgment, and that is the righteousness of his Son, Jesus Christ. You see, he did what you and I can never do. He paid the penalty for our sins by suffering and dying on the cross, but he also earned for us the righteousness that we need by living a perfect life of obedience. And when we believe on his name, and look to his atoning sacrifice as the only hope and ground of our salvation, then God, through his Holy Spirit, imputes to us the righteousness of Christ so that, so perfectly, so that when we stand before him, it's as though we had never sinned. And Paul understood that. And that's why he accounted everything in himself as rubbish and done. Do you do the same? In Matthew 13, verses 44 to 46, Jesus tells two parables that beautifully illustrate the point of our text. 
In the first parable, Jesus compares the kingdom of heaven to a treasure in a field, which a man found and hid, and then sold everything that he had in order to buy the field. In the second parable, Jesus compares the kingdom of heaven to a merchant seeking beautiful pearls, who when he had found one pearl of great price, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. Both of these men had something of their own. They both had possessions, but they sold it all. They sold everything that they had in order to buy the thing that they wanted and needed the most. That's exactly what Paul did. When he encountered the Lord Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus, he encountered a holiness that he had never encountered before. And from that moment on, he realized that what he once counted as righteous in the sight of God was not. It was only garbage and dung. Paul came to the realization that he needed a righteousness that was not his own. He needed a perfect righteousness. He needed the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And so he exchanged his own supposed righteousness for his righteousness. He gave up everything he had in order to gain Christ. My friend, have you done the same You know, that doesn't come automatically. It doesn't come by nature. By nature, we want to contribute something so that we can take at least some credit for our own salvation. But when the Lord begins to work in our heart through His Holy Spirit, He shows us that all of our efforts and contributions are utterly unacceptable to God. They're all done. That what we need is a righteousness that is not our own. What we need is the righteousness of Jesus Christ And the good news of the gospel is that he is able and willing to give us this righteousness if we repent of our sins and trust in his name. Oh, my friend, have you done so today? Take a look today at your balance sheet. What are your liabilities? What are your assets? Is Christ your only asset? Amen. We always appreciate hearing from our listeners. If you were blessed by or have a comment on the message you've heard today, we'd very much appreciate hearing from you. Our mailing address is Banner of Truth, 3386 Mount Lehman Road. And Lehman is spelled L-E-H-M-A-N. And that's in Abbotsford, British Columbia, V4X2M9. Or you can email us at bannerofTruth.com at frcna.org. If you would like to listen to the message you've just heard again, or if you would like more information about our program, including how to contact us and how to listen to other messages on this program, please visit our website at banneroftruthradio.com. That's banneroftruthradio.com. Support for this program is provided by the Free Reformed Churches of North America. For more information about our churches, including where you can find a church nearest you, please visit our denominational website at www.frcna.org. Your financial support for this program is welcome and deeply appreciated. If the Lord has placed in your heart a desire to help us, To offset the costs of broadcasting this program on this station, you can send us a check in any amount. Again, our mailing address is 3386 Mount Lehman Road, L-E-H-M-A-N, Abbotsford, British Columbia, V4X2M9.
Or you can go to our webpage and make a donation right on the webpage. Our webpage, again, is banneroftruthradio.com. Please remember that the Lord would have his people come together to worship him on the Lord's day. For that reason, we urge you not to use this or any other radio program as a substitute for being an active, contributing, faithful member of a Bible-believing church. Thank you for listening, and now, until next week, may the Lord be with you all.